If you have your Bibles tonight, meet me in the book of Joshua as we continue in our series where we left off, and that's in chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. In chapter 2, we know that Joshua sent two spies into Jericho, and by the assistance of a prostitute named Rahab, the spies who were detected escaped, and they made it back to their own camp. And as they came back to the camp by the end of chapter 2, they didn't announce it to the whole congregation, but they, as Joshua planned, came up to their leader, and they told him, this is over. They are melting with fear. They know who is for us. They know who is behind us. Joshua, God's word is true. And as you and I come to chapter 3, Joshua, with eagerness and excitement, wakes up early the next day, only to now charge the entire nation to do something that they have never done in the history of this people, and that is make their very first steps towards the promised land. And you can almost, as you read this chapter, feel the excitement in the air, the anticipation, the, the expectation. All these things now are, are about to boil over into reality. But before the nation of Israel was able to receive their inheritance from the Lord, God still, even at this moment, at this transitional moment, still had instructions for the people. They might have been bubbling over with joy. They might have been eager. But that excitement could not lead them into that place. They needed to be framed rightly to know how they can experience and conquer what God said they would experience and conquer. And we have to keep in mind, even at this point of the Bible study, that the promised land is a heavy picture of the spiritual blessings that Jesus Christ has for you and I. And so when we hear these instructions, we're hearing them in that kind of a context, how these principles of obedience are the same for us in the new covenant to know what Jesus wants us to have. And so from the first few verses, what you and I are going to read are two main rules that Joshua is going to give the nation of Israel that are very much ad adopted by our faith. And the first rule here is in verse 1, 2, and 3. Let's read it. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. There it is. Joshua set this rule. No person, no family, no individual could get up and head towards the river that is the border of Moab and Canaan no person had that right unless it was first triggered by the Ark of the Covenant that would be lifted up and would lead the people ahead. Now we know if, you, if you've been with us long enough and if you're a serious Bible student, what that Ark represents. It represents this treasure chest looking piece, the presence of God. God made that the very seat of His presence in the earthly form. It was His throne on earth. And so to say that the ark would be carried was to say in the most practical and most tangible way, I'm getting up and moving and you can't move until I do. And you can't advance until I do. And you can't move forward until I do. And so it was a call to a sensitivity to the people to rely and depend upon the Lord's leadership and not assume that for themselves. And how true is it for you and I that we cannot enter into what God wants us to have for our respective lives until we know how to follow His lead? It is not something that we can do. We can't make this stuff up. We can't maneuver ourselves into His perfect plan for our lives and to extract as much of His blessings for us. He must first take control. If He doesn't have the driver's seat, we are not going to drive ourselves into it. So they were, they were called to be sensitive to the presence of God. And this is echoing how Moses operated as a leader and how he led the people in his day. So go to Numbers chapter 10 and see this for yourselves. This was modeled by Moses in chapter 10 of Numbers. And 
go to verse 33. And what you and I see in Joshua's ministry is a parallel to Moses' ministry. Look at verse 33. This is Moses' leadership before Joshua was ever a leader. He was still an assistant at this point. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey. Now look at what it says. To seek out a resting place for them. To seek out a resting place for them. And, and then what? And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. So this Ark played that sa very same role. The Ark would go before them because the Ark knew where to take them. The ark served as the very eyes of the people, and here was God's purpose to find a place of rest. That was his navigation system. Where can I lead you to know an inner peace, an inner satisfaction, an inner knowing that you are in the very center of my will for your life? And that is God's plan for you and I, that when he is ahead of us, and when we continually rely on him, we can trust that Throughout our days, we will know a peace, a peace that surpasses understanding and a peace that you cannot conjure up if you had every resource from heaven and on earth to make up how your life wants to be made up. See, if you are doing what you want to do, and no matter how that looks in the physical, you can be in a mansion with all the cars you want, all the money you want, all the relationship with you want. If you're not in the will of God, you will not know his peace. But if you're in the will of God, God can stick you in an igloo in northern Canada and you can know a peace more than the guy that's in the south in the mansion apart from the will of God. And that's why people who live independently from God's leading are miserable. And that those who know God and live for God and are in step with God know a peace. And know an inner rest that is incomparable to what this world offers. So here's the question. They had a physical ark that led them. What's in it for us? How does that work for you and I? Well, the psalmist said it perfectly you know this, and if you don't know this, I encourage you not just to know it, but memorize it. Psalm 16, 8. What does the psalmist say? It's going to be there on the screen and may be written on our hearts. It says here, I have set the Lord always before me. I have set the Lord always before me. Not sometimes, not when things get kind of scary, not when I have to apply for a job, not when I'm trying to find a wife. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand you know what that means if somebody's at my right hand it means they're very close and the hand says something of decision making but he's at my right hand so he's going to be doing the decisions for me because he's at my right hand i shall not be shaken did god set himself before him no he says i set the lord always before me it's a conscious decision listen of inviting the Lord into every aspect of your life, of consoling, of seeking, of leaning upon the Lord. A life that is void from knowing the Word of God, a life that is void from consistent prayer, a life that is void from seeking wise counsel from spiritual people is a life that is not setting the Lord before Him. Because they had the physical ark. We don't have a physical ark. We don't live by sight. We live by faith. But we have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. See, in the Old Covenant, they had the ark to deal with. And that ark led them. But when Jesus tore the veil, it wasn't just so that we can go in. It's so that the presence that was in the veil can come into us. And so we have, as the tabernacle of the Lord, our very own, in some sense, ark of the covenant in our very bosom. But we need to consciously say, okay, Lord, I'm going to set you before me. You lead the way. And you show me where to go. And you close the doors that need to be closed. And you open the ones that need to be opened. And you go, well, how do I live like that? Well, you do it like Joshua. You know his promises, but you take his hand and you, you live practically. And you trust that he will sovereignly lead in your life. But I can tell you, not just non-believers, never mind non-believers. Believers don't know how to set the Lord before them. At least always. But the life that guarantees you a freedom from worry and anxiety is a life that knows how to continually say, Lord, Go. In fact, look how Moses does it in Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10, you scroll down to verse 35. We read 33 and 34. Look at verse 35, and Moses shows us how he did it practically. And whenever the ark set out, Moses says, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So whenever he started his day, he was like, Lord, come with me. 
Come with me and come with the people. And Lord, push over the enemy when he tries to come and attack. So he says, arise. But he didn't just say arise. Verse 36 says, and when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. What do you see there? You see a man who was continually in communion with God. That he knew how to start his day and he knew how to end his day and he knew how everything in between, he was walking with the presence. He was practicing the presence. He was continually communicating with God. And God, what was the promise? Would find a resting place for them. I can guarantee you as long as you make this a principle in your life, you will know an inner rest that is unshakable. That is unshakable. And so what was demonstrated through Moses was now modeled in Joshua. Because the danger here is in verse 4 of Joshua chapter 3. Look what the warning was. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, it being the Ark of the Covenant. There shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits. That can be, that can be measured to 3,000 feet. 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way that you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. What an interesting command. The idea was that the Levitical priests would take up the ark, they would move forward, and the temptation of the people would be what? To crowd around the ark. And the danger of getting too close to the ark was what? What do you think the danger would be? Not that it was just because it was holy, there was a very practical reason for this. Touch it, yes, because it was holy, but think about if they're being led by it and you have a crowd of people around it, what is it going to do to those hundreds of thousands behind them? They can't see it. It's, it's out of their visibility now. It's not in their uh, perception. It's not something that they can be led by now. And so here's the warning that you and I have to face, that we can get ahead of God, and that we lose visibility of him leading us. The distance wasn't just a call necessarily for them to be far from something that was so holy and precious and sacred. That is true. Listen, the distance was what? So that you shall know where you will go. The idea was it would be visible to their sight and the temptation of the people would be to be so excited, so eager, so wanting to move that they would either come up to the ark or even move ahead of the ark. And God says, no, put this line of measurement between the people and between my presence. In other words, it was a call for them to not get ahead, but to continually be behind and for the Lord to always be before. And so this is a very practical instruction for you and I, is that God Almighty, no matter what's going on in my life and no matter what's exciting in my life, teach me to bring it before you before I do anything else. I could tell you that you will prosper in every aspect of your existence if you know how to do that. Now you and I, you're hearing this and you go, this is so simple, why would you say it? Because as simple as it is, we don't get it. And we don't believe it. And we don't act by faith on it. And so we meet somebody really amazing and we're so caught up in emotion that we don't even console God if this is the person that he has in mind. And we look at a job opportunity and it just looks so amazing and all the benefits and we, we get so amped up that we don't even ask God. And we can do that for every aspect of life. We don't invite him and set him before us and that can lead to dangerous things. You're safe as long as you're on your knees. You're safe as long as you commune with God. And I love what it says here, that this distance had to be set. Why? Not that you would just only know where it would be and where you will go, but look at the last part of verse 4. In order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Okay. This is something that you and I can relate to as well. It wasn't just for direction, it was because there was an uncertainty. There was an uncertainty about the steps ahead. And so the people needed to rely on God's leadership, lest they think they know what to do and where to go and find themselves in a place they never wanted to be. Or lest they prolong the process between their destination and the promised land. God wants to spare you from detours. God wants to spare you from wasted time. God wants to spare you from emotional heartbreak. God wants to spare you from even your financial dealings. God wants to spare every aspect, but it, it takes a conscious responsibility to say, Lord, you go ahead and you lead. And he'll do that. And here's a beautiful promise for you and I. The fact that this was uncertain for them, the steps ahead, this is the same comfort that you and I have. Though we don't know what's ahead, as long as we bring him before us, he knows it all. 
He's determined the steps. He's determined the journey. He's determined every aspect. The moment they left Egypt to the wilderness journey, to the very promised land itself, and how they would conquer it, has already been determined by God. There's proof for that. And it's in a, in a portion of Scripture that you and I might not find that insight. It's in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20, verse 6. Look what Ezekiel 20, verse 6 says, in light of what we're just talking about. Ezekiel 20, verse 6. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that who searched out? That the spies searched out? No, the Lord says that I searched out for them. Huh. So before any spies were sent, before any mission was dealt with either by Moses or by Joshua, God had already seen it and determined all of it. God spied it out. God knew how it was going to be conquered. He didn't need anybody's help. It was a requirement of faith on their part. And listen to this. The same God who knew the directions and the timing of Israel coming into the promised land, is He not the same God that governs your life? You're wondering who's, going to, who's that person going to be and what, what am I going to do for a living? And am I going to live that long? And God says, I already, I already know. I searched it all out for your life. It's already written in books. It's already determined. Now, if you want to experience it, ask me. Ask me for my will. Trust in my timing. Lean on me and not your own understanding. And just wait. And just wait. That is a comforting truth for you and I. It was true for Israel. It's true for you and me. But I want to see another lens of this. Another perspective on this short little story. The call for Israel was one simple task at this moment. Keep your eyes on the ark. Don't place your eyes on anybody else. Don't trust some other guy in there in the Israelite camp. Be like, you know, I, I think there's a detour. My cousin Joe told me there's something else here. Let's go over here. No. Keep your eyes on the ark. And as long as you do so, you will know success to your soul and in every aspect of your existence. Now, here's a beautiful thing. We're not called to keep our eyes on a physical piece of furniture that represents the presence of God. We're called to do what Hebrews 12 verse 2 says. You know Hebrews 12 too, right? Look what the scripture says. That the Christians are to look unto who? Jesus. Looking to Jesus. And other translations say, fix your eyes on Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you understand what he's saying here? The author of Hebrews is wanting the people to know a stamina in their faith. The author of Hebrews is wanting them to know an endurance and a fruitful pilgrimage for their Christian faith. And here's the secret. Just keep your eyes on Christ. That's all you need to do. And as long as you keep your eyes on Christ... You will know how to respond in things in life. You will know how to act in things in life. You will know when to speak, when not to speak. You will know a wisdom and you will know an inspiration for the rest of your days. Can I tell you one reason why so many start out so good and by a year, two years, 10 years, sometimes even 15, 20 years, you don't even know where they're at with their faith? You want to know one reason? They looked at something else other than Jesus. They took their eyes off of Jesus. And they place it on themselves, they place it on their circumstance, they place it on their needs, they place it on a failure of a spiritual leader, and the reason why they are not knowing how to suffer well, how to endure, how to remain above temptation, is because they fail to look to Jesus, to keep their eyes on Jesus. You will stumble, you will trip, you will backslide if you do not know how to keep Christ before you every day as your standard for righteousness, as your example of suffering, as your source of wisdom. You know, it's amazing how many Christians are failing in their spiritual victory because they compare their, their holiness to somebody else's. They're not your example, especially if their example is not Christ, no matter what they call themselves. Jesus is your example. And so keep Christ before you. As you walk through this life, let your eyes lock with His. 
and stay there. And you will know something of endurance because we have this word that we glean from. We have this word to stare at. It's not some mystical thing. We have the written word of God to say, Lord, let me see you and let me keep my eyes on you. And when you face your own cross, you'll see how he handled his. And when you don't know what to do at certain points, you will see Jesus and you will say, Lord, help me imitate you. And when you do that, not only do you have inspiration, you have his power that helps you live the way he lived. The Israelites were called to keep their eyes on the ark. And as long as they did that, they would be led into the promised land. You and I have to just keep our eyes on the greater Joshua. And we will know spiritual victory and blessings like you wouldn't imagine. Now, that was the first rule, to be led by the ark. But look at verse 5 to see the second rule. It says here in Joshua 3, 5, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. A lot of people want God to lead in their lives, especially if it includes blessings. If I were to say, do you want God's perfect will for your life? It would be very strange for you to be like, I don't know, I think I like my idea better. And some people do. But we can confidently say that a majority of us in here would be like, I want... God's perfect will for my life. And you go, I'll do my part in setting him before us. But there's a second rule. It's not just being dependent upon him. Joshua says, you got to consecrate yourself. So let me put it this way. This completely destroys the concept that Jesus is our genie in a bottle. And we rub and we say, Lord, tell me how to live and where to go. No, there, there's a... There's a thing that we need to do to position ourselves there. And Joshua says, so you, you're going to trust in the ark leading you. Yes, okay. But remember, this ark is holy. This isn't some imaginary thing. This isn't some, again, genie or Santa Claus. No, he's God. Do you want his leadership? Yes. Then consecrate yourselves. You want to go to the promised land? Yes. You want to know how we're going to cross this Jordan River? Absolutely. Then consecrate yourselves. Now again, did we see this before in Moses' leadership? Yes, we did. Where did we see this specifically? A call to consecration. Think now. Think of the Exodus journey. When was there a strong emphasis to consecration? You're right. It was on Mount Sinai. God was going to come on the mountain and visit his people and give the law. But Moses said this. Listen to this in Exodus 19, verse 10 and 11. It's going to show up. And again, we're seeing a parallel between Joshua and Moses. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Verse 11. Why? And be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So we have an understanding here that the first generation of Israelites were called to consecration because God was going to visit them. The second generation of Israelites were called to be consecrated because God was going to do amazing things before them. And if you and I can draw any principle from this, it's not that if we live holy that God's going to do miracles necessarily, split water, and we can test God and say, Lord, I'm going to do this because I've lived a sacred life. No. But there is an element, there's a principle here, that if we choose to live consecrated, we can expect something of a nearness of God and something of His work in and through us as His people. That's what consecration does. Now, what is consecration? Can, can anybody simplify what consecration means? In like less than a sentence even. To be set apart from sin and to be set apart for the things that God loves and for His glory. Beautiful description. If you want to know what consecrated means, all it means is separated. Separated from what? Everything God says for you to separate from. Everything that would displease Him and, and rob him of his glory in your life, he would say, consecrate, cut that out and move it aside so that you can be singled out for my purpose. And that consecration is necessary for what? Well, I see for Moses' case, for God to reveal himself in a specific way. And I see in Joshua's scenario, for God to do something in my life and through my life and let me be a witness of his glory. And the thing that enters us into that place and that lifestyle is a thing called consecration. It's really not a price to pray, pay. It's really not something that we have to give up. It's a privilege and an opportunity. Why? 
Well, because God is holy. And so if you want God's nearness, just like the people wanted to know God's nearness in Exodus and to see God's power in Joshua, He's holy. So if we're going to know Him in close proximity, it only means one thing. We have to be holy. We have to be holy. And I can show you New Testament verse after New Testament verse that proves that. That Timothy needed to be a vessel set apart from things that are dishonorable to be a vessel for honorable use. And that if the Corinthians were to know something of God walking in their midst, they needed to what? In the fear of God, perfect themselves in holiness. And perfect means simply to be mature. Consecration is the payment. Really a privilege. And I wonder if the reason why so many people can't get rid of worldliness and can't get rid of sin in their lives is because they either fail to see the gifts that come with that or they've esteemed that the world has something better to offer. Every person has to make a conscious decision, not just to set the Lord always before them. Listen, every person needs to make a conscious decision to say, am I going to live my short little life for my pleasure and my desires and sin and waste my life? Or am I going to position myself to whatever God calls me to so that I can know something of His nearness and something of His power? You and I have to make that choice. And the decision that they had to make is a decision you and I have to make. It requires consecration. It's a very unpopular subject, especially when as evangelicals we emphasize something called grace. And we should. Justification by faith. Salvation by faith. So then when you introduce something that requires you to do something, attendants go up and they go, what's your deal? Well, my deal is this, that salvation is a guarantee, but not the call of God for your life. And that's the Bible. You and I don't just get faith and then automatically receive everything God wants us to have on this side of heaven. You might have heaven, and I would question if you even get that, if you think you can live however you want, if you have faith. But you and I must enter into that stream in order to know something of God's wonderful blessings in life. Two rules. Set God always before you and consecrate yourself. And you'll realize that it wasn't a price after all. It was something that was worth it. Let's see verse 14 and 15. Excuse me, verse 7. All right, here's what happened. God spoke to the people. God spoke to the priest. Now God wants to speak to the leader individually. God wants to look at Joshua as an individual person and give him something. Now, Joshua has been showered with encouragement concerning his call. But now God wants to assure the man and make sure that everybody knows that he is really called. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today... I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Isn't that an amazing encouragement? He goes, I've been encouraging you, and I've called you by name. I've called you by my own voice. But it's one thing for you to know that you are called. I'm going to make sure everybody else knows that you're called. How was Moses assured of his leadership before the eyes of God's people? Does anybody know the moment where people were like, oh, this is the leader. Oh, this is the leader. Because it tells us the moment it happened. Think, out of all the events, what was the one thing that set Moses on a pillar of confidence before Israel? Think now. Face was shining. That's one opinion, maybe. There was a specific moment. The Red, sea. the Red Sea. That's the exact moment it happened. In fact, look at Exodus 14. Right after they crossed the Red Sea, look at verse 31. This tremendous miracle took place. And look at this little commentary. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord, and who? In His servant Moses. The water split into two walls, they crossed through, and the result of that was God is God, and that's the leader he called to take charge of this mission to bring us into the promised land. Now, that happened for Moses. How was it going to happen for Joshua? In the very same way. He's going to lead them through the Jordan River on dry ground, mimicking and modeling the very same thing that impressed on the hearts of people through Moses' miracle Rather, God through Moses for the Red Sea. Do you see the parallel in the window? Do you see how it's a mirror, rather? 
Now, how do we apply this to our lives? Here's how you apply it. Especially if you're a leader or aspiring to be in ministry. If you feel a call to serve God in a particular way, be encouraged by this truth. Joshua did not need to exalt himself. Joshua didn't need to promote himself. Joshua didn't need to convince everybody how he was called by God. Joshua didn't need to knock on doors. Joshua didn't need to assume leadership or push his way into a place. Joshua was exalted by God. And listen to this very carefully. If you're called by God, God will make sure that people know you're called by Him. That's a little controversial, especially when people treat ministry like a job. Ministry is not a job. It's a calling from God. And if it is a job, I wouldn't get into it because why would you, why would you position yourself... There's so many other careers. Pick something that doesn't involve spiritual warfare and the forces of Satan coming against you. It's a good deal, right? But if you're called, God will in some way, somehow, impress it upon certain people's hearts that this person is truly set apart for a purpose in God's kingdom. Are you going to have people that are going to oppose? Sure. Are you going to have people that are going to criticize? Sure. But there will be a knowing. There will be hearts that are touched, especially the hearts in which people, the people God wants you to serve, will know this is something that is sent from God. And so you, you know what I read? That You know what I read? You don't have to bear the burden of exalting yourself and of convincing people. Live out in obedience to the degree that God has given you in that season that you're in right now. And if God truly calls you for a specific ministry, He will know how to promote you effortlessly on your part. Take that burden, bring it to the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, if you really called me like I feel that you've called me, I'll know that you'll bring me in where you need to bring me in. It's as simple as that. He didn't say, Joshua, I know I've called you, but I don't know if the people are going to be convinced. So do this and this and this to show them necessarily that you're called. No, he says, I will do it. I'll do it through you, yes but it will be effortless on your part. What a wonderful comfort. It's all on the Lord. And if it's on the Lord, you can trust Him. Now we scroll down to verse 14 and 15. All of this has a specific timing, which is absolutely important to understand. The people are at the bank of the Jordan. Now, if you see the Jordan River, it's not very comparable to the Red Sea. But what we see in verse 14 and 15 is that the people are faced at a body of water with something that is interesting. Note here in verse 15. And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of water. Now look at this in parentheses. Look at the insight. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. Do you see that? So this specific season and this specific moment, this body of water is not normally what it should be. It is swollen. It is coming off of the banks. It is extra dangerous. It is extra active. It is making the task even more difficult than it needed to be for them to be able to cross through, especially as a large group of people. So now God in His sovereignty does what? Don't get distracted. What does God do in His sovereignty? He chooses a specific timing in the year where the water is going to be that much more difficult to cross in order for them to face something and pull out more faith from their hearts more than if it was another time of the year. So the author wants to say, realize that it's not any ordinary time. This is a specific time where it's flood season. And God in His sovereignty goes, now is the time to go. And they go up to the bank, and they're probably looking at each other like, really? Is this really the time? Can we just camp out until the season passes by, and we can just move on through easily? God says, no. This is the time I want it to happen. And now you can imagine, as that water was rushing through, we don't know what was going on in that moment. All we know is that the Holy Spirit says, this is going to be a little bit more of a challenge than it could have been. That's how God likes to work, by the way, just to give you an insight. He could have done it an easier way, and he could have gotten glory for it. But God saw an opportunity to get more glory from it, and it would be a little bit more difficult on their part to grasp. But if they just had enough faith, they would see God's greater glory in it. 
So it wasn't just the directions that God was sovereignly over. It was the timing. And please know this. If you're going to ask God for his will for your life, it's not just going to include where, where, and how. It's going to include when. And that's the part that irks us the most. That we want God's calling. We just don't want the challenges that come with it. We don't want the testings that come with it. We don't want to be faced with anything that would cause us to be fearful or anxious. But God oftentimes in your life and mine will do such a thing. Can he do things easily? Sure. Can he prevent certain things? Absolutely. But in this moment for Israel, and oftentimes in your life, he wants to maximize his glory. And so what are they going to do? Well, it's going to require faith on their part. And there's something about Jesus and his timing that oftentimes doesn't make sense to us. And it's not an absence of his love if he makes you wait on something or if he presents a circumstance that doesn't allow you to smoothly move forward. It's not an absence of his love. Better believe it's a result of his love. So you have a man who was a friend to Jesus. His name was Lazarus. And not only was Lazarus a friend to Jesus, Lazarus had two sisters that loved Jesus and Jesus loved them. And one day Jesus gets news that Lazarus is desperately sick. And his sisters send forth a word to say, go grab Jesus. Because if he gets back here on time, maybe Lazarus can be healed and we can keep our brother. So news comes to Jesus. People were sent express mail to meet the Savior. And when they come to Jesus, he gets the news. In John chapter 11, we see his response in verse 5. Look at this. This is astounding to me. It says, now Jesus loved. Now the Holy Spirit wants to emphasize the fact that he loved them. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Like he loved them personally. He loved them individually, not as a family, not as a group. He loved them each with an intense love, with a pure love, with a holy love, with a sacrificial love. And so we're going, okay, he loved them. He got news that he's sick. Now, pause before we get to the next verse. Imagine you had a cure for some kind of a sickness, and your family friends at a distance knew that you had this cure. And somebody that you knew your entire life, or somebody at least that you love so deeply, is sick. And so news is sent to you saying, so-and-so is sick but we know that you're able to provide something that you possess and we need it desperately. And you in your love, having that ability and having the, even the ability to make it there, would you not drop everything to make sure that they do not pass on from life to death, knowing that everything is, is lying in your hands and you have that responsibility and that opportunity? Would you not do whatever you needed to do to make sure that your friend, your family member that you love would know healing? You want to know how Jesus responded? Because he loved them? Look at verse 6. So, so what? Because he loved them. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. But you love them. I love them. He's ill. He's ill. So Jesus, let's go. Actually, I'm going to stay two days longer. Jesus loves with an intensity and with a measure and in a way that some of us cannot comprehend. See, Christ can show his love by immediately intervening in a situation in your life and mine. But you know how else he can manifest his love? By not meeting that need right away. So what's going to happen? Jesus, if you love them, will you not prevent your friend Lazarus from tasting death? Sure, he could have, but he didn't. And some might argue, well, Jesus knew that he had the power to raise him from the dead. Yeah, but he added two days of grief and pain to his sisters and all other loved ones. He could have prevented them from experiencing two days of more grief. But no, he loved them, so he allowed them to experience more pain for two days. And so we think, what kind of love is this? How does this love make sense? And to be honest, we don't know the ins and outs of how Jesus shows his love in this particular way. But there isn't umbrella of truth over every circumstance in this one and your and mine 
that can testify something of God's love, how is God's love manifested in prolonged suffering? Look at this verse in Romans 5. Verse 3 and 5. And here's the umbrella of truth. More than that, we being Christians, rejoice in our sufferings. Do you know anybody else that can rejoice in their sufferings? I can't other than a Christian. We rejoice in our sufferings. Was Lazarus suffering? Were his sisters suffering emotionally? They weren't having a grand day in that moment. Let's be real, they were human. They were suffering. Why could people, Christians particularly, rejoice? Knowing something. There's a truth that surpasses the pain in the moment that anchors us. There's a knowledge of something that keeps us grounded in suffering. Listen, ready for this? Not just grounded. It's one thing to be grounded. It's another thing to rejoice. To be grounded is one thing. To be kept together is to, to be one thing. To come into church without falling apart is one thing. But to come into church and to sing on top of it, that's something else. There's a knowledge of something, a knowing that suffering, there's a production in suffering. There's a producing in the womb of suffering. And what is it? Endurance. But that endurance produces something else. And it tells us in verse 4, an endurance produces character. And character produces hope. So hold on. Jesus loved Martha, Lazarus, Mary, so he prolongs their suffering. And in prolonging their suffering, he knew that something in pain purifies, something in pain produces and cleans, chisels and molds a character that cannot be known unless through the tools and the instruments of grief. I love you enough to answer your heart cry to be like Jesus. So here's some suffering. So in that place of any category of pain, we can know that we are deeply loved and that God in his sovereignty allows it because he knows that through it, there will be something that will come out of you there will be something that will shine from you that will come through the polishing of pain. And so we don't just look at suffering and go and cling, hoping that God is in control. We look at it in the face and know that we can experience something wonderful through it. In the moment, it doesn't feel like it. Oftentimes, in retrospect, we see it. You can be amazed to know how suffering creates more compassion in people how tender they become after they experience trials in their own life and they're faced with others and they know how to speak to them and they know how to allow them to lean on their shoulder. You'd be amazed to know what shattering events in life can build so much in you and me. And so Jesus loved them. And so he prolongs the suffering. And we think Jesus' only way of showing his love is removing suffering. His love is much deeper than that. Well, you go back to John 11 and you realize that there's another motivation for this. It is for his love for us. But look at verse 4 before what he says in verse 6, in verse 5 and 6. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So there, there is another ambition of God in our suffering. Yes, because he loves us and he wants to show his love. But he wants to get glory. He wants to get glory. He could have gotten glory by healing Lazarus earlier, but he's going to get more glory from raising him from the dead. And the price was a little bit more tears. The price was a little bit more agony. The price was waiting. But the outcome, the production in the persons, and the glorification of the Son of God, this is what Christ is after. If you want to know two pillars... As you and I face any type of pain, it is God loves me to allow me to go through this. And God's going to get glory out of this one way or another. So the people 
facing the Jordan as they see the water, maybe having water splash on them, wondering how they're going to get across. They realize that God allowed this timing so that he can get glory out of it. And he loved them enough that through this there would be a producing of faith, a producing of character, a producing of trust, so that when they face other things, they have a memorial. In fact, chapter 4, we're going to get to it next week, if we have next week, is going to tell us that they're going to have a memorial to look back on so that when they face future trials, they have something to stare at long enough to realize that he's the same God. So if there is even a moment in your life where it is so turbulent that it's almost causing you to question life itself, do you realize that God is instituting and establishing a memorial so that for the rest of your days, you can say, he took me out of that, so he's going to take me out of this. That's how God works, experientially. Yes, we know things theologically, but when the, that theology becomes real and tangible and touchable and it leaves some scars, that's something that creates a faith that is unbelievably comforting. So let's summarize in this. Want to know God's will for your life and mine? This is not eisegesis where we are putting our interpretation to the text. It's a universal principle from Bible cover to Bible cover. And it is this. Set the Lord always before you. It's as simple as that. Consecrate yourselves in that same process. Because to say, God, I want this and I want that, and to live in a way that hurts his heart, they're incompatible. God knows how to exalt you and I if he has a calling for you and I. God knows the borders of your influence and he knows how to expand them if he chooses and as you seek him for it. And God's timing in transition, God's timing in your life and mine does not line up with our calendar or our watch. But God knows how to manifest his love in timing and prolonging things and making things quicker than they need to be, God's timing is amazing, but it is always motivated by a throbbing love and by a way of extracting every ounce of glory that he can get. And the more we comply and wait and trust, the more we can know something of that deep affection he has for us. And through us become a trophy where people praise him as they see his glory through your life and mine. Here's how we're going to close tonight in this Bible study. All we're going to do as a response to this Bible study I want you to think of every area of your life now and set it before God and let the Lord be before you. Say, Lord, I'm putting this before you and I'm letting you lead me. Help me to walk in a conscious awareness of leaning upon you and trusting in you. That could be for your ministry. That could be for your spouse or your spouse-to-be. That could be for anything in your life. Take your hand off of it and say, God, take, it, take charge. It doesn't mean you don't make decisions. It just means that you're keeping him in mind as you're doing it. And whatever timing God brings you into, may these truths be anchored in your soul so that you remember, okay, I'm facing this and I don't understand why, but I know that it's going to be for God's love in my life to be known and for God's glory for other people to know. That's your inheritance in mind. Let's pray tonight. What is it that you need to set before the Lord tonight? Set it before him now, total confidence. Your future, the decisions that you feel like you need to make, the, the opportunities that seem to be lacking, whatever it is, God said to them through this instruction, make my presence visible. Keep your eyes on me. Don't crowd or get ahead so that you miss where I'm leading you because I know the terrain of your future. God, I bring it before you. And if you brought every aspect of your life before him, bring it before him afresh. Say, Lord, it's yours. I bring it before you, God. Would you just bow your hearts with me? Let's pray for this nation, for the, the world, really, for our own lives. Father, in Jesus' name, we look to you as the only hope for a chaotic situation as this. God, it's so easy to be shaken, but we set you before us. 
at our right hand. And we know that we will not be shaken. Lord, this is not a call to fear, but it's a call to be wise, a call to be prayerful. And Lord, if anything, as your church tonight, we see this as a tremendous opportunity to see the Prince of Peace manifest in such panic around us. Show us, Lord, with our own lives, with the people that we know, to demonstrate that peace and that serenity. Show us, God, as a church, how to operate and how to even move forward from this moment on. And somehow, Lord, as so many distractions are put away, sporting events, entertainment, traveling, and the whole world now is at a halt. Father, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would manifest your glory to an undistracted generation. We see this as a window of time for people to behold Christ. May we not waste it. And Lord, we pray for your power to come in a way like we can't even comprehend. Use this, Lord, for your glory. Do not be silent, Lord. Do not withdraw yourself. But in the opposite, penetrate the hearts of a depraved generation, of a darkened people, of a corrupted society and culture. Sweep through with your conviction. Sweep through with the news of Jesus Christ. May every person, believer and non-believer, feel how frail they are and how even a virus can put a whole world into such confusion and chaos. Lord, may that fear be given to you instead of these things. And may you manifest your glory, Lord, and your judgments, and your love, and your gospel. We pray, God, that you protect every person from head to toe, from any sickness, any disease. Lord, you promise that you are sovereign over our health and that nothing will touch us unless you permit it to. But we ask for health. We ask for perfect energy and strength. We ask that you would prolong our days for your glory, God. And Lord, we give you our hearts. Tonight, as a corporate body, we set you before us and we consecrate ourselves. And we say, oh Lord, manifest yourself and do wondrous things through our lives. We give you all the glory, all the praise. We give you our complete trust for our lives and for this period of time that we are experiencing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.